as we continue to look at worship and what does it mean um, with the hope and the expectation that by looking at worship, what also will be accomplished is as we make reference throughout the year, as we are coming to February, we're already one-twelfth of the way through with this year, that we will have in mind what worship means. Now, this isn't something that I hope that only 2023 would conjure up or bring to our expectations. Some of you will recall before we started the remodel process, there were three pictures with some words outside in the entry area that read, point people to God, pull people together, and prepare people for mission. That was our church's mission statement that we adopted. One thing that I'd like you to keep in mind is so far as we've been through this study, we've discussed what does it mean to pray? What does it mean to praise God with our singing? And what does it mean to worship God in the preaching of His Word? All of these things, I would say, fall first and foremost in that first P of our mission statement. It answers the question, how do we point people to God? Well, we must be a praying people. We must be a people that preaches God's word. And that includes you. We must be a people who looks to his word as sufficient for our lives, as the answer for what we need, for the salve to our disappointments, for everything that we could possibly hope to bring us encouragement. We must sing God's word. How is that pointing people to God? Well, by singing God's word, not only are we participating in the fellowship of the saints, but we are teaching one another through song and hymn and spiritual song. We are teaching one another, reminding each other. One thing we have to keep in mind as we discuss worship is what's taking place, namely, on the Sunday morning service. What's happening right now? Church, I want us to be clear that this is not an evangelical moment for our church. That doesn't mean that our church should not have evangelical moments. We should have hundreds of them, thousands of them. In fact, it should be as we're going throughout our day that we are evangelizing our neighbors, our community members. In fact, even as a church, we should plan and prepare such outreaches. But what happens on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, when the church gathers? This is for the saints. We worship God's word because we say that it's true. It is our starting point for all things. So we've got this mission statement. I am so proud of our mission statement, church. You did a great job coming up with it. It encapsulates the Great Commission. Go into all of the world making disciples, teaching them all things that I've taught to you. And it brings in not only the great commandment, not only the great commission, but also the great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what, teacher, teacher, what is the greatest of all of the laws? He said, it is this, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And the second is like it, that you should love one another. Hmm. In these things, all of the laws of the prophets are contained. If we take this great commandment that Jesus points out for, his, for us in his own exposition, and we put it to the great commission that was left to the church, I believe we need to point people to God. 
but we also must pull people to one another. The Christian journey is not an isolated event. And for whatever reason, this seems to be the overwhelming theme in Christianity. That Christianity must be an individual experience. And certainly that's true. There is truth to it. Your salvation depends on your individual relationship with Christ. Not on the profession of your parents. Not on the profession of your grandparents. Not on the tradition. It depends that you have made a personal recognition. That you are a sinner. That you need a Savior. And that you have one in Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross so that He could pay the penalty of your own sin on your behalf that you would be united to Him. We certainly could have began in the study of what worship is simply by looking at the early acts of the apostles. But for fear that I may become too nerdy and dive too much into uh, what would be a delightful exposition of the book of Acts, I'm not ruling it out. We may do it sometime in the future. We've bounced around hitting these different themes this year. I want to draw your attention this morning to Acts chapter 2, where we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47. As we read this this morning, my focus, I am intentional, and hopefully we will be discussing namely the fellowship of believers. How do we worship God by pulling us one to another? But I want you to also be aware, as we read this text this morning, of all of these different elements that are present in the early church's witness of praise, of singing, of preaching, of praying. I'll direct your attention there, and hopefully your Bibles are open and ready to read. Before we read, let us pray to God that we might be granted insight. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for those gathered together here this morning. God, I thank you for those unable to be with us. Lord, I pray that you would be with our church. You'd be with each member and meet their needs. For us this morning, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would grant us insight into your word, that as we study it, it would not be confusing or that the meaning would evade us, but God, that we would seek your spirit, which promises to grant us all understanding. God, guide us in your word. Guide us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask these things. Amen. The Bible says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. 
The first thing we must make an observation about is how praise, how joy permeated the early church. Let's drop this into the context really fast. What's taken place at the beginning of Acts? Of course, we know this is the day of Pentecost, and so, um, or shortly after the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter has just preached his wonderful sermon, which I would encourage you all to go back and read at some point today. I won't because I will surely get distracted, um, but I would encourage you to do that nonetheless. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The disciples who knew him were gathered together. They were mourning. And as promised, the Holy Spirit descended and took place in their hearts, and they were, what happens with the Holy Spirit, also equipped for the work of ministry. Peter, a fisherman, uh, a country boy, someone with a regular uh, vernacular, somebody who spoke the everyday language, stood up and preached in a way that was profound. Not just that, but these Signs were beginning to take place as people began to observe and hear what Peter was saying in their own language. And the wonderful outcome of this was that people heard the word of God preached and they responded to it. They heard it and they knew that there was truth in this. They knew that there was power in these words and they marveled at the fact that the man preaching wasn't particularly educated, but that he was particularly gifted by the spirit that dwelled inside of him. It, they knew that it was not by man's power or man's coercion or man's force that these words had any meaning at all. Rather, it was because they came from the very divine, from the very almighty, from the one that had formed them, the one that they were familiar with, the one that since the day of their creation and the day of their conception, they had been aware that there was something bigger than themselves. And they responded and they were received and they were baptized and added to, their, that, added to them that day were 3,000, says Acts 2.41. Well, the church grew with tremendous power. But what did the church do? What did the church look like? Church, listen to me this morning. If we want to be a church that glorifies God in all that we do in our individual and corporate worship, then we must turn to the example of a church that was thriving, not through a means of pragmatism that we might adopt what seems to be secularly successful. Or in other words, not from a means of doing what the other guys are doing because it seems to attract a lot of people. But we must do it by the nonsensical attitude of simply appreciating what God has already given to us and saying, this is the model for ministry in our church. What did they do? Verse 42 says they devoted themselves. They were devoted. They were committed. They were resolved. Everything that the church did was pointing back to being a church of God, a people of God. What did they devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching. The King James, I appreciate it, says doctrine. That's a bad word in a lot of churches today. We say doctrine and people check out. It simply means teaching. What is the teaching of the church? They devoted themselves to growing in the teaching of the church and understanding mysteries that were difficult to grasp. 
And not from an academically rigorous course or anything of this sort, but through a spiritual means of communing with the divine God that is above all things outside of our complete comprehension. They marveled at it. They were awestruck with it. And the fellowship, the communing, the spending time together. Now, are these things connected? I want to make one quick observation. First, we see the joy. Second, we see they were committed to teaching and fellowship. I want you to notice that teaching comes before fellowship. Here's why that's important. Oftentimes, we try to measure spiritual things by our personal experience. Indeed, even in my own life, in my personal theology, experience is a validating norm of understanding what God is doing. In other words, experience, our personal experience with Christ, is our affirmation. I know something's true because I was there, right? But we must be careful. Some churches... False churches will preach a message that says that experience comes before teaching. Something cannot be true and false at the same time. Guys, that doesn't make sense. I don't care where you're at. It can't be right and wrong. Teaching is the measurement of absolute authority, while experience simply validates the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? The church must be cautious not to base the way that they worship off of sentimentality and emotions because it feels right, disregarding the fact that it may disregard their teaching of the Bible. For the church's worship to be authentic, we noted this from uh, John when Jesus is teaching the Samaritan woman, true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so what we observe here that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship is simply that point. They did what the scriptures said, and it was validated by their experience. Well... That seems like a tough one. This is me speaking, but I think that's rather tough. When many churches that I would say ascribe to a high view of Scripture, many churches that hold a particularly uh, reformed view of the church and the preeminence of preaching and the way that God would have us to worship Him and all of these things that I would generally affirm, I also find an emotionally constipated congregation. That's a weird phrase, emotionally constipated. You know what I'm talking about. We find church members that would rather seek the accuracy of exposition than experiencing God. a shame. Perhaps we're so afraid of being like those groups or those schools of people that I have mentioned that would place an emotional experience over the teaching of Scripture that we have overreacted. Indeed, this is the case any time we make mention of God. Any discussion of theology, you'll find this problem. We live on a pendulum 
a weight on a string that swings back and forth. And so often when we see one extreme, we allow it to fall and we enter ourselves into another extreme. Well, that's just as bad as being on the other end, isn't it? Loved ones, we cannot understand spiritual truth without approaching them in a spiritual way. It demands openness. To understand the divine requires that we would humble ourselves. Even to say, even if I were smart enough or well-rounded enough or well-read enough to understand everything that had to be said about the Word of God, even if I had all the contextual understanding at a level that had never been seen before, that when I read the Bible, none of it is confusing to me, I would not understand it if I did not approach it seeking God's Spirit. I've said this several times this month. Reading the Bible shouldn't be hard. And that statement, I think, is not landed well. We hear that statement and we think I'm saying, for whatever reason, that if it's difficult for you to read the Bible, that, well, something's missing. And, well, indeed, maybe that is what I'm saying. But the point is not that, the point is not that reading the Bible should be simple to the point that there is no work in understanding it. The point is that you cannot read the Bible without seeking the Spirit. You cannot read God's Word and try to understand Him without also trying to let Him show you who He is. Consider how we get to know one another. Something remarkable happens in the church, namely in this wonderful thing called fellowship. Something truly phenomenal. I remember when I first came to Denver Street and I was getting ready to go to an associational meeting and Brother Lane said, why do you go to those things? It's full of old people. I said, well, I go to see my friends. He says, old people? I think it's funny. Most of my friends are older than I am. Hey, it's only in the church that you find a 28-year-old man who can be best friends with a 70-year-old person. Well, what could they possibly have in common? What could they possibly share? What could they possibly have that sets them apart and makes them like this? Listen, loved ones, Psalm 68 verse 6 affirms what is taking place in the church here when it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. The Bible says, God setteth the solitary in families. Bill Gaither's gospel song, The Family of God, beautifully points out this phenomenon that is taking place. He says in lyrical form, Now you'll notice we say, brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family, and these folks are so dear. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed by the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. For rags and to riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here. But praise God, I belong. God calls us into a family. 
He brings us into a fellowship. What do we lose by being emotionally constipated, as it were? What do we lose by building up barriers that simply do not exist? What do we lose by disassociating ourselves from a community because by earthly standards, it would seem that there's nowhere for us to tap into this? Many ministries themselves have even separated themselves in this way where, hey, Sunday school is a perfect example. Here's the young kids Sunday school and here's the old kids Sunday school and here's the adults who aren't quite old yet, they think. And and here's the, the college age group. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is young people learning from old people. It's integrated. Oh, it's these barriers being broken down, not just in the sense that we would look at everyone as a mother or a father or a grandparent, but that we would call each other brother. Indeed, you do, all of you. All of you have done this. No one calls me by my name anymore. My name's Brother Derek. I don't think anyone's called me Derek in the last two years. That's not bad. I enjoy it. You are my sisters and brothers, aren't you? Do we, in some liturgical fashion, call each other father or mother? No. We're all a part of the family. The family of God. So what is this fellowship and what makes it so special? Well, first, let us point out that this fellowship is common. Verse 42 points out that this early church, this 3,000 plus conglomerate of people, devoted themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, and what comes next? To the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think indeed it's true to say that the breaking of bread may make reference to the Lord's Supper that the church would observe. But more commonly, I want us to understand that the Lord's Supper was a meal that the church shared. When we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul describing the Lord's Supper being taken place by the Corinthian church, he makes point that people were coming not just for a spiritual communing with God, but with their actual nourishment needs. He rebukes those in the church who viewed themselves as elite or authoritative or higher class, whatever the distinction we would make. And he says, you don't wait for the poor. Indeed, if you were really a church, you would let the poor eat first. And you would make sure that everyone gets their share before you go through the line a second time. Well, isn't this a common meal? Hey, it's almost like what we're getting ready to do as soon as I get done preaching. As soon as you get done worshiping God through the preaching of His Word. We're going to have an immediate opportunity to apply this to the worship of the church and our fellowship with one another. So listen up. I want you to know what to do when you get back there. Eat food. This is common. The other note I want to make about this being a common fellowship is it's not something that is subsected to a point or a particular area of the calendar. It's not something that just takes place on Sundays or Wednesdays. But if the church is really going to worship God in fellowship, in full authenticity, here's what it means. Do it all the time. If you're really going to break down barriers, here's what it means. Poor people spend time with rich people. Laborers work with managers. Old people spend time with young people. And they commune 
They have a connection. They have something that brings them together that transcends, yeah, transcends earthly expectations. So often we come to a church and we evaluate it by the people there because we want to be a part of community that we belong to. But the reality is, if the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling inside of you, what you hold in common with every member of the church is the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them. And so city slickers need to go fishing. And fishing boys need to, I don't know, go to an axe throw. I don't know what city people do. My point's this. What holds us together is more than what we do or the earthly expectations or the titles or the entitlements that we place on ourselves. What holds us together is God. And when we really let loose of these barriers that keep us separated and divided and these walls and facades that we build around ourselves, whether it's because of insecurity or whatever the problem is, folks, I'd have some advice. Just get over it. Just get over it. I'm, I'm tired of all of the secular advice for dealing with it, your insecurity. Seek God. I'm not saying that to trivialize real and serious problems that need to be managed and treated and everything else. But guys, seek God. It answers a lot of these problems. It dissolves these barriers that we put up for ourselves. I mean, if I spent more time being consciously aware of God dwelling inside of me and guiding me as I read the Bible, illuminating truth to me, convicting me of what is right and what is wrong as I go day to day, bringing to my mind particular particular scriptures, particular songs, if I'm consciously aware of this all throughout the week and I come in contact with somebody who is a Christian, I think I have enough to talk about with them. Just get over it. Put the facade down. Spend time in common fellowship and common breaking of bread with the members of your church. So what if your church house isn't picked up? There's different levels of not picked up. I understand that. I have two toddlers at home. I know all about that. Why are you letting these small things get in the way of spending time with people that you love? Or would it be more accurate to put scare quotes around that and to say, why are you letting these small things get in the way of spending time with people that you love? Do you really love one another? I better get moving or I'm going to, our food's going to get cold. Fellowship is common. What we find also in verse 42 is that fellowship is spiritual. Verse 42 says they were committed not only to the teaching and to the fellowship, but to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. I think I've made my point here that our fellowship with one another, what makes it transcendent is that it is hinged to our spiritual communion with one another. We must be aware of that. We must be acknowledging that. Verse 43 goes on and describes what is quite remarkable in the early church. And all came upon every soul. The King James, I believe, translates it, 
fear came upon every soul. And the more modern translators have taken that word fear away, but fear is a descriptor of what it means to be worshiping God and to be aware of what it is that we do towards Him. The other translation, I think, still makes sense. It says, awe came upon every soul. To be awestruck and bewildered that a divine God that by no comprehension of man decides He's going to save anyone. Some people, when they come across the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and they say, how could it be that God would not save everyone? I come back to, I think you're asking the wrong question. The question is not how could it be that God could not save everyone. It's how in the world could God save anyone? Because He saves those that He calls them to Himself. He saves whosoever shall believe in Him. But why? What has humanity done for God? Well, is it because I'm so redeemable in my charming wit? No. Is it because I'm so funny? No. Well, is it because there's a certain degree of innocence inside of me that I don't understand right from wrong? Also no. Why is it that God would save me? Why in the world? When sin entered the world, why didn't he just hit the erase button? Why didn't he just make the earth vanish into nothing? It was nothing before. He was all sufficient without it. He didn't need to make us. Why did he let it keep going? Goodness, when I really understand God and his all-knowing nature, this means that not only did he know decided not to forsake the world after creating it. But he also had foreknowledge of knowing that sin would enter the world and all the depravity of man that we've seen in our lifetime alone would come into existence. And he still created. Loved ones, the question is not why would God not save people? The question is why would he save you? And the answer is this, because he loves you. Because He loved you before He created the world. Knowing that you would come about. That you would be born in a particular day. He came about because He loves you. And what's taking place in the early church is a testimony of this. Of the people that He is calling unto Himself. Through the miracles and wonders and signs that were being performed through the apostles. Certainly, this was marvelous. And today, we look at the church and we say, where are the miracles? Where are the signs? Where are the wonders? Loved ones... People are getting saved. They're moving from a position of righteous judgment that warrants that they would be cast into hell, into outer darkness, not because God is wrathful or wants to take vengeance upon them or because He's some puppeteer playing with the evil, uh, maniacal themes for these people, but because they rightly and justly deserve hell. And when I say they, I mean you. When I say you, I mean me. Deserve it. 
These signs were being performed that people would know that what was taking place in the early church, if it wasn't a marvel enough to simply look at the phenomenon of fellowship taking place in the church, it was that they would know that what was taking place is true. Miracles, I believe, are still happening in the church today. In the day-to-day salvation, as verse 47 says, that praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's remarkable, in fact, that many of the signs and wonders that that is made reference to in verse 43 is not described, but in verse 47 we find a description of what I think is the greatest miracle of all, that God could soften a heart. I mean, think about this. We have many educators in our church, and I'm so thankful for that because I do not know how to teach people, but they give me great wisdom uh, oftentimes. Think about this. To take somebody from a place of ignorance to a place of understanding. How do we accomplish that? Is it by making them read things? Nope. Is it by lecturing really well? Nope. Is it by being really clear? Nope. It's by allowing them to experience it for themselves. So too is true of the ignorance that is inside of all man as a consequence of total depravity that the veil is pulled over his eyes and God softens their heart that they would have understanding of their actual deserving of hell. That they would have understanding of his actual love for them and that he would bring them into a place of this love. It's Incredible what is taking place. This is the greatest miracle taking place. This is the sign and wonder that is a testimony to the community. Not only that people would be saved, but that they would be discipled. I mentioned our mission statement. Point people to God. Yeah, that's step one. Pull people together. Yeah, that's what we're talking about right now. But does it stop there? Do we have the old Sunday school Problem one, two, and three, that's fine for me? Or is it that we're preparing ourselves for mission? Is it that we're going beyond that? Is that what the sign and wonder is for? Certainly it is. Not by means of man, but by the means of God. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord built the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless God is the one at work building the church, it is in vain that the church be built. Indeed, the same could be said of our individual lives. Unless it is God at work in your life, guiding and directing you in all that you do, it is vanity. You are working for yourself. My mother-in-law is at home on hospice, so death has been on my mind a whole lot. All that she's ever lived for, it all comes to an end. The scriptures, when describing the life of humanity, describe it as a vapor. I'm so glad there is a baby here this morning. I remember the first time I was holding my children when I first became a dad. feels like just last year I was in elementary school. Our lives are a vapor. What lasting legacy? Can we, can we build an empire? Can we build a kingdom? 
Can we make sure to leave a massive estate for our loved ones that they would know that we would always take care of them? Certainly some people have. I won't. I've dedicated my life to the ministry and pretty resolved to be in poor, so I'm happy with that. That's a joke. You all take phenomenal care of me. Please understand that's a joke. The only thing we could possibly hope to live behind is first the comfort of our family and knowing that we knew our personal Savior and knew where we were going when we died. And second, it is that we shared our testimony and our faith with them. What a wonderful miracle. My life means nothing unless it is the Lord that builds it. Just two more points. Fellowship is not just common, not just spiritual, not just a sign and a wonder to the community around us, but fellowship is consistent. And I made point that it, when I mentioned that it must be common, that this is something you should do throughout the week. But more importantly, it should be consistent. Verse 46 says, day by day they were attending the temple together. Day by day, they were breaking bread together. Fellowship cannot be something that we participate every once in a while. If our relationships are to grow in glorifying God, listen to what I'm saying. Boil this entire sermon down. Getting to know the people in the pew next to you is glorifying God. You should be eager to want to do that better. I mean, if you want to glorify God, that is. I use Paul's rhetoric and say, if you're not interested in glorifying God, maybe you're not interested in that. You understand I'm being facetious. It's day by day. Not week by week, not month by month, not annually, not uh, coming around for the Christmas service or the Easter service. It's day by day being committed to the fellowship of the believers that they would know that we love them. It's overcoming these obstacles because just because I say that there's a spiritual element in our fellowship that allows us to overcome, overcome age differences and economic differences and class differences and um, even racial differences and all sorts of, the list goes on. There is no barrier greater than what God is able to do. We're still human. If you really want to overcome these things, not only do you have to depend on the Spirit, but you must be consistent in overcoming them. Last point. Fellowship is worship. It's worship. It is the chief end of man. When we ask, what is the chief end of man? What should we say? We should say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In other words, why were you created? To glorify God. For what purpose were you made? To glorify God. Why do you exist? To enjoy God. How do you do that? By enjoying His people. This word fellowship means communion. It's the same word Paul's going to play off of in his multiple analogies when he describes the church as the body of believers. What does it mean that we would be a body together, that we would be grafted in together, that we would be drawn together into this 
community. It means that God is not only making us something new as individuals, but He's making us something new as a people. Why does this matter? Why, is that, why does it matter that I look at myself as a people? Why, certainly we live in such a self-centric society that this concept of community has grown out of fashion. Maybe it's not even popular anymore. Why would I spend time uh, at all trying to understand it? Here's why. It is through community that God gives people the Bible. The Old Testament was given to the people of Israel, not to a person, to a people. The New Testament were grafted into the body of Christ, a people. Jesus promises to redeem the church. Why does this matter that we draw near each other as a community and in fellowship? Because it is through community that we allow teaching. It's through community that we grow in prayers. It's through community, like all of these other elements of worship and singing and preaching and praying, that we are reminded and pointed and directed back to God. Why does it matter that our fellowship would be used, that we would be able to worship God? It's as simple as this. Because there is a war waging inside of all of our hearts to live in a world and to be a part of a Christian community. The Christian community might be compared to an island where we are surrounded on all sides by a secular world separated from the world. Indeed, that's what it means to say that we are a church, that we are separated, that we're called out. What happens when you live in this ocean or you spend time wading in these waters is your mind gets distracted with everything of the world and you begin to be drawn towards what I would describe as a practical faith, a faith that is void of spirituality. Or, worse of all, one of these false prophets that has gone on and said that our emotions matter than something else. So how are we supposed to return to this? Through a community of believers that directs us back to God. But that's dependent. That's dependent on how you have contributed to the health of that body. You think it's possible that your friends are going to take care of you, that they're going to be able to give you good advice if you've not opened yourself up to them? If you've not revealed to them the problems and obstacles that you face in this Christian life? I don't even know where to begin in giving you advice or exhortation. Unless you've opened up. All I can really tell you is to get over it and look to God. Oh, and that's good advice. I don't have to know all the details of your life to know that that's good advice, that when we look to God, that, wait, wait, how do I look to God? That's right, with fellowship pointing me back towards Him. Fellowship is worship. The people received their food with glad and generous hearts, Praising God. Fellowship is an act of praise. I'm excited to share this meal with you all in a moment. My prayer would simply be that as we seek to apply this message or this passage to our lives, as we seek to understand what God would want us to do in response. 
that his word not, would not fall on deaf ears, but on a people who are eager to get to know the people sitting next to them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your people. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in worshiping you through the fellowship of believers, not just today, but day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.